Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer of the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, we talk to Tabitha Jackson, the head of the Sundance Institute's documentary film program. She's responsible for the grant funding and labs that are vital for so many filmmakers around the world. In our conversation, she talks about trying to respond to the current political times. What does it mean in these times to be independent? I think as, sun, as we look at ourselves as, uh, as Sundance, we recognize and are proud of the fact that we stand for progressive values. And I think a large proportion of the community and the audience and the funders and the filmmakers stand for those values as well. Um, but we clearly missed a lot, um, uh, it seems, or there's an opportunity to engage in a different way, perhaps, if we think about what it really means to be independent. We'll hear more from Tabitha Jackson in the second half of the show. Before that, we want to give you a preview of documentaries at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Even if you won't be in Park City, Utah this month, we're going to fill you in on our top recommendations that will be released later this year. We'll discuss world premiere films about pop culture figures from Mr. Rogers to the band Imagine Dragons. There are films that speak strongly to the current feminist movement, including a profile of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and another film about the young Nobel Peace Prize nominee Nadia Murad. There are stranger-than-fiction stories, including Three Identical Strangers, about triplets separated at birth, and a film called Shirkers, a first-person story of a female filmmaker trying to recover her unfinished film stolen by her mentor. Some of the Sundance documentaries already have distribution with companies like Netflix, HBO, and CNN. Other films will be looking for buyers, represented by sales agents like UTA, Submarine, and Synetic. Last year, the Sundance Marketplace was at an all-time high, with the deep pockets of Netflix and Amazon driving up prices to seven figures. Now industry watchers wonder what comes next. To discuss this year's lineup, I'm joined by Rafaela Nehausen. She is the executive director of Doc NYC and was on this podcast when we previewed that festival last November. Rafael is also the executive producer of Pure Nonfiction and an Oscar-nominated producer, not to mention my wife. Rafaela, welcome back. Thank you, Tom, for bringing me back. Should we explain that we're recording this in our basement storage room? You call it a storage room. I call it a studio. Okay, let's dive in. We have a lot to talk about. You've gotten an early look at half the Sundance lineup. I haven't seen quite as many, but I've caught some good ones. Let's start with the U.S. documentary competition that has 16 films vying for jury prizes. We'll talk about four of them. One you mentioned that I'm very curious to see is Three Identical Strangers. What can you say without giving too much away? So the starting point of this story is from 1980. It was widely reported then. Three identical triplets, Bobby, Eddie, and David, were separated when they were six months old and adopted by different families around New York City. They grew up within 100 miles of each other, but only met by accident when they were in college. At the start of the film, one of the triplets, Bobby, describes his first day at college when strangers kept coming up to him and calling him Eddie. I finally made it to this dump of a dorm room. And before a minute had gone by, who now? Who now is going to come to find Eddie? At the door was Eddie's friend, Michael Domnitz, who heard there was someone who looked like Eddie on campus. I had been at college the previous year with Eddie, and I knew that he wasn't coming back to school. As soon as this guy turned around, I, 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 was, I was actually shaking. I was, I, I know, I, the color from my face dropped because I knew it was his double. He had the same grin, the same hair, the same expressions. It was his double. And I see this guy's face, and he's like, 
just standing there. The first thing out of my mouth was, were you adopted? And, and I was like, yes. I said, is your birthday July 12th? He said, yes. I was like, July 12th, 1961. Oh my God, I said, you're not gonna believe this. I said, you have a twin brother, you have a twin. The triplets had a period of fame in New York City. Madonna put them in a movie. They opened a Soho restaurant. But this film reveals many more layers to their lives. The three brothers grew up in different families, one affluent, one middle class, one blue collar. And the film raises larger questions about what creates a person's character. Is it nurture or is it nature? The film's director, Tim Wardle, works with the UK production company Raw that had a celebrated Sundance documentary six years ago called The Imposter. I loved that film. Actually, the director of The Imposter, Bart Layton, is back at Sundance with a fiction film called American Animals. That's one concession to fiction that we'll make on pure nonfiction. Anyways, I'm very excited for you to see Three Identical Strangers. Me too. I look forward to seeing it. Now let's talk about a film that I have seen and can't forget. It's called The Sentence. The title refers to a prison sentence given to a Latina woman in Michigan named Cindy Shank. She had a longtime boyfriend who was a drug dealer. The state accused her of conspiracy in his drug dealing because she never reported him to the police. She refused to take a plea bargain, and the state eventually dropped the case. Cindy then went and started her life completely over. She distanced herself from the drug world, married a really nice guy, and gave birth to three beautiful girls. But six years after her case seemed closed, it got suddenly reopened by federal agents. In the film, her husband Adam describes the day that agents came knocking on the door. It was just the eeriest knock. I mean, it woke me up out of a dead sleep. Cindy jumped up. And later she told me she knew. She knew the minute she heard that door knock, I said, who would be knocking on the door at, you know, 6.30, quarter to 7 in the morning, something like that, 7 o'clock. I can't quite remember exactly. And she didn't say a word. She got up, grabbed grabbed the girls, you know, and and went in her room and just was hugging them. And unbeknownst to me, I really wasn't paying attention. I, I went in to the living room and opened the front door, and they said they had a warrant for her arrest. And when I turned around and saw her, you know, hugging the kids, I... <laughs> That was tough. That was tough because she knew already. Cindy Shank was given a 15-year prison sentence, even though her worst offense was dating a drug dealer. The judge had no option to grant a lighter sentence because laws that require a mandatory minimum sentence were in place. This film shows us the human impact of those laws. The filmmaker is Cindy's brother, Rudy Valdez, who documents his family for several years while Cindy is in prison. We watch her little girls grow up without a mother. And I can tell you, as a parent, it is completely devastating. You're going to want a Kleenex for this film. Maybe a box of Kleenex for this film. Cindy, she's a remarkable character, and so are her daughters, parents, siblings, and husband. Distributors, look out for The Sentence with music by Sam Brisby. In your heart is with my heart In my heart is with your heart I carry your heart deep inside Where you are, just shut my eyes Close to me There are many strong women characters in this year's Sundance films. Nadia Murad is only in her 20s, but she's already been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. We can appreciate why from the film titled On Her Shoulders. Nadia belongs to the Yazidi people, a Kurdish religious minority with a population under half a million. They were targeted for extermination by ISIS in northern Iraq. Now, Let me pause here because this description may sound like other documentaries about war victims, and this film is different from that. On Her Shoulders looks at the way that Nadia Murad has gone from being a victim to a spokesperson and the enormous toll it takes on her. On the surface, she is a composed, beautiful, and eloquent woman, but her history contains unimaginable trauma. 
When Nadia was 19, ISIS invaded her village, killed 600 people, including many of her family, and made her a sex slave. She was lucky to escape, and now she advocates for the Yazidis, lobbying politicians in North America and Europe. The film's title, On Her Shoulders, refers to the psychic burden she carries. As she talks to the press, she's forced to constantly revisit her worst traumas, as we hear in this montage. This is very difficult for you, so only tell me what you feel comfortable telling me. How did you manage to escape? Will you ever go back to your village? And when you think about the men who raped you, what do you want to happen to them? Did you at any point try to talk to them? Try did to you try to resist? Them? Could you tell him no? They killed your mother as well, I think. I imagine there's also moments that you just want to stop and lead a normal life, right? What happened to the women? What happened to you? How do you deal with all of it? Director Alexandria Bombach handles this material with enormous sensitivity and artistry. In a way, the film is about storytelling, about how we package traumatic stories and what it means to retell them. The fourth and final film we'll discuss from the U.S. competition is called Minding the Gap. It marks the debut of a very talented young director named Bing Liu. He grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and started filming his skateboarding friends when they were teenagers. They are a multi-ethnic group, Asian, white, black, but they all grew up in homes with domestic violence. Skateboarding was their escape. Bing continues to film his friends into their early 20s. His friend Zach has become a father himself, and Bing is concerned that cycles of domestic violence might be passed on to their generation. Bing asks Zach if he ever saw his parents fight. Do you ever see your mom and dad fight? My, my stepmom and my dad? Um, yeah, I mean, all the time. They fucking, most of the time they argued about me. <laughs> uh, like once or twice the cops came to my house, but that was when I was young, young, maybe like 10 or 12. You know what I mean? Not, not as a teenager, it never got, I don't think it ever got like real physical. I think just the fight got real gnarly. I mean, shit, I've called the cops on fucking Nina and my baby mama before. Like, sometimes you just need the fight to stop. Bing's many years of filming pays off with rich and complex portraits. But there's also the pleasure of watching his skateboarding footage through the empty streets of Rockford. Bing is a terrific cinematographer whose talent was spotted by Chicago's Kartemquin Films, best known for Hoop Dreams. Kartemquin director Steve James hired Bing as a camera person on his new 10-part series, America to Me, about a multiracial high school that's also playing at Sundance. If you're looking to discover new talent, don't miss Minding the Gap. Now we'll talk about two of the 12 documentaries in the world competition. The first is called Our New President, and it's one of the films Sundance has chosen to play on opening night. We screened a short version of the film at Doc NYC last November. It looks at the presidency of Donald Trump through the eyes of Russian media. Most of the film is composed of clips from Russian television. Here we are, the Russian hackers. Russian hackers. A Russian hack. A Russian hacking. Russian hacking. A Russian hacking. We're going to tell you the whole truth because from now you, the dear CIA, NSA, and FBI, won't be able to do anything about it. I won. I mean, I became president. In intelligence, you still haven't discovered the main thing. How did we manage to hack more than 60 million Americans who simply chose to kick out the establishment? The clips, including Russia Today's English-language broadcast, are often conspiratorial, sometimes laughable, mostly horrifying. The director, Maxim Pozdorovkin, is uniquely equipped to make this film. He has Russian roots, but now lives in New York. He previously co-directed the documentary Pussy Riot, a punk prayer, about the dissident Russian band. 
He also directed one of my favorite short documentaries of last year called Clinica de Migrantes that I urge everyone to watch on HBO. The second documentary we'll highlight in the world competition is called Shirkers, and it's among the most creative documentaries I've seen at Sundance. The director, Sandy Tan, grew up in Singapore. As a teenager in the 1980s, she had an outsider's sensibility. She was obsessed with punk rock, fanzines, and indie film. She met a middle-aged man from America who taught a film class, became her mentor, and took her on a road trip. Sandy narrates the film. In the summer of 1992, my friends and I shot a road movie on the streets of Singapore that was to become a kind of urban legend. That movie was called Shirkers, a word which means running away, avoiding responsibility, escape. I wrote the script and played the heroine, a 16-year-old killer named S. When they finished shooting the film, her mentor took the reels and never gave them back. 25 years later, Sandy tries to piece together what happened to Shirkers. She is long overdue to be recognized as a special talent. Every bit of this film is mesmerizing. Now, we're moving to the documentary premieres section of Sundance, where they program high-profile subjects and established filmmakers. We'll be discussing three films, the first of which is about the band Imagine Dragons and its lead singer Dan Reynolds. The film is called Believer. Should we explain how we first heard this song? Sure. Our seven-year-old son, Bez, heard it in his babysitter's car and started making incessant requests for it. True story. So thanks to Bez, Imagine Dragons is in heavy rotation in our house. But I knew little about the band, and you don't need to know anything about them to be engaged by this film. It follows the lead singer, Dan Reynolds, who struggles with his Mormon faith and the church's official position opposing gay marriage. Reynolds himself is straight, but he became more sensitive to LGBTQ rights after marrying the singer Aja Volkman, who wasn't raised Mormon. So, Tom, essentially you're saying this is a film about a husband who listens to his wife. He does more than just listen. His wife's best friends are a lesbian couple who had a hard time with their friend marrying a Mormon. Reynolds sets out to make a stand for greater acceptance of LGBTQ marriage in the Mormon community. We watch him work to stage a Utah music festival called Love Loud as a place for the band's Mormon fans to come together with LGBTQ fans. Another band that figures prominently is Neon Trees, led by Tyler Glenn, who is gay and was also raised Mormon. I previously didn't know Neon Trees, but I had heard their hit song on the radio. You don't need to be gay, Mormon, or even a fan of this music to feel invested in these characters as they struggle with their beliefs. The filmmaker behind Believer is Don Argett, whose credits include the documentaries Rock School and The Art of the Steel. He and his producing wife, Sheena Joyce, are always delivering strong work. This film is going to be very moving to watch at Sundance against the setting of Utah. 
It's already been acquired by HBO to reach a national audience. It was all a dream back when I argued Reed v. Reed. Then once they put Sandy D up in the dub DC, Janet Reno made the call. When Slick Willie chose me to sit, and now that I've been installed, I rock the black robe with my jabot. Sipping tea while reading Amici Tales of Woe. Way back when I caught a lot of flack, I held back. Now look where I'm at. Remember the next Frank film is about a woman who's fought the good fight all her life. I'm talking about none other than Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the film titled with her initials, RBG. She was the second woman ever to serve on the court. Now, at age 84... Ginsburg remains a critical liberal vote on the Supreme Court, known in recent years for her strongly worded dissenting opinions. What's a revelation in this film is to learn more about her career before she was on the Supreme Court. During the 1970s, she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, where she argued several key cases over sex discrimination in front of the Supreme Court. I did see myself as kind of a kindergarten teacher in those days because the judges didn't think sex discrimination existed. Well, one of the things I tried to plant in their minds was think about how you would like the world to be for your daughters and granddaughters. I learned a lot about legal history in this film, but the real surprise is the incredible love story between Ginsburg and her husband, Martin. They met at university, and he was very ahead of his time in supporting his wife's career. CNN is a backer of this film, and they hope to find a theatrical distribution partner for it at Sundance. RBG directors Julie Cohen and Betsy West have made a film that feels perfectly timed for today's fight over sex discrimination. Now, turning to the final film we'll highlight from the documentary premiere section... It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you, so... Let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Fred Rogers, the creator of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, is the subject of a new film called Won't You Be My Neighbor by Morgan Neville, who won the Oscar for 20 Feet from Stardom. This film has already been acquired by Focus Features for a theatrical release in the spring. Morgan is a master at telling the stories of underappreciated cultural figures. This is one of his best works. He has access to a treasure of archival footage and conducts new interviews with Fred Rogers' family and co-workers, including a producer on the show, Margaret Whitmer. We had a director that once said to me, you take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite. You have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, simple set, unlikely star. Yet, it worked. Because he was saying something really important. Love is at the root of everything all learning, all parenting, all relationships, love or the lack of it. And what we see and hear on the screen is part of who we become. That simple theme of love your neighbor has a very powerful resonance. Watching this film makes you realize how much we could use Fred Rogers today. Before we wrap up this preview, I want to mention two Sundance documentaries playing in other sections. The festival has a category called Next that typically features dramatic films, often with low budgets or representing new styles. But the next film chosen for the festival's opening night 
is a very special documentary called 306 Hollywood. The filmmakers are a sister and brother, Alan and Jonathan Bogarin, and the film is an artful tribute to their grandmother, who lived in a small New Jersey house with the address 306 Hollywood. Their grandmother was a pack rat, and after she died, Alan and Jonathan weren't ready to let go of the house and its memories. They treat it like an archaeology project, cataloging everything they find and arranging the pieces like works of art. Here is Jonathan narrating. For our next excavation, we set off with a simple goal. Bring some order to the chaos. Archaeologists have a name for this. They call them catalogs. The idea is that the groupings, the patterns, reveal some underlying connection, some underlying order. So we make our own catalogs, but we start with a specific kind, and we call them portraits. Here's one of Grandma, a portrait made of stockings. This one's of Grandpa Herm, made of hats, shoes, and ties. What we can't convey in this podcast is the exquisite attention to visual detail in 306 Hollywood. Their playful treatment of uncovering memories reminds me of the work of Agnes Varda and Alan Berliner, which is the highest praise I can give. And yet, it's wholly original. And for our final recommendation in this preview... I want to point to a project in New Frontiers, the section curating art projects that blend film and other disciplines. This work is a live documentary performance with the Kronos Quartet called A Thousand Thoughts. The director is Sam Green, who was Oscar-nominated for his documentary The Weather Underground and has gone on to create other live documentaries where he tells a story on stage accompanied by film clips, often with live music. The Kronos Quartet is a string quartet with a 40-year history of performing adventurous music. Green made a short film about them. In that short, Kronos co-founder David Carrington describes his goal. We have not created the bulletproof piece of music that, you know, a young child can wrap around herself or a, a grandparent can wrap around his family, or we haven't been able to do that yet, but I think it's possible, and I'm, I'm looking for it, and I spend every minute of my waking life trying to find that. That's our job. After making the short, Green pitched Carrington on the idea for a live documentary. Carrington said, I don't get it. Would it be a movie, a concert, or a lecture? Green said, it would be all three. In the live presentation of A Thousand Thoughts, Green talks about the bulletproof piece of music being a utopian idea. And I think what we're doing here tonight is a little like that as well, reaching towards some kind of elusive experience of what makes the Kronos Quartet and their music so powerful. And the fact that we're doing this together is important. What I like about this live format is that you end up with something different every time. It's ephemeral, kind of like the lost chord. A regular documentary is a fixed, permanent thing, which is nuts because there's a million ways to tell any story. I think that's a good way to sum up the Sundance lineup. It demonstrates there's a million ways to tell a story. In the coming months, we hope to go deeper into these projects, interviewing the directors on pure nonfiction. Up next is Tom's interview with Tabitha Jackson, head of the Sundance Institute Documentary Film Program, coming after the break. If you're in New York City, please join us at the IFC Center for our weekly screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. 
Every Tuesday night, we show a new or old documentary, followed by a conversation with the filmmaker or other special guest. The winter season runs through February and March. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net. Tabitha Jackson was appointed as the director of the Sundance Institute Documentary Film Program in 2013. She oversees grants to filmmakers and other projects. She came to Sundance from working in London at Channel 4, where she was the head of arts and performance programming. At Channel 4, she rallied behind ambitious projects like Bart Layton's The Imposter, Mark Cousins' The Story of Film, and Sophie Fine's The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Last November, Tabitha came to the Doc NYC Pro Conference to participate in a daily session we call Morning Manifesto. It's a short conversation in which I tried to distill a person's expertise for our audience. We were speaking only a month after the New York Times reported on Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse, and new revelations were cascading every day. So um, I wanted to shake it up a bit. Enough of your distilled wisdom. All right. Let's have some undistilled. Spilled, spilled, (laughs) spilling over wisdom. Yes, and... um, to acknowledge the current times that we're in, I'd rather it wasn't called a manifesto, just a festo. Okay. And, uh, a festive. A festa, yeah, festive. And then maybe, you know, if I sense any untoward activity, I ask for lots of chairs to be put on stage so that we can move further away from So you from can throw other. one at me. Yeah, exactly. So with that, how are you? <laughs> Scared. You should be. Not least because um, I think we should let the audience into our dirty little secret that we recorded the most boring podcast ever (laughs) together, which never saw the light of day on both our requests. It's true. You you volunteered it. uh, It was like a kind of real morning after thing. Tabitha called me the next morning or emailed me or texted me or something and said, you don't have to use that if you don't want to. <laughs> In fact, so maybe bad. I'd rather you didn't. Yeah. Uh, and, and you acquiesced was... rather too quickly, I have to say. But... <laughs> Hard to know how to respond to a woman these days. <laughs> okay, stop right there. <laughs> so should we, we should talk about something more safe. Right, like the spirit of independence. Uh, yes. Uh, you had uh, spoken to me before about th- uh, ways you've been thinking about fostering an independent film community and what that means. Well, yeah, and I mean, to full disclosure, um, this isn't this isn't uh, a distilled set of wisdom. These are just I just thought if you could bear with me that we could talk a little about some of the questions that that we're thinking about, and you know that expression from Rilke to live the questions um, is a useful is a useful process, so perhaps, uh, Tom, you can help us formulate where Sundance goes next in these, in these strange times. But um, we've been thinking a lot about how to strengthen an interdependent documentary community, because that's, um, because that's what it is, and that's where its strength lies, but also how to empower the independent voice. And... Um, I've been listening to this clip, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, but nevertheless, I'm going to bore you with it again. Because as I I love the artist, I love the role of the artist in society, and think there's an incredible power to it. Um, but I hadn't heard it distilled as powerfully of, as this, um, to my shame, until relatively recently. So um, you may recognize the voice. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. For art establishes the basic human truth, which must serve as the touchstone of our judgment. The artist, however faithful to his personal vision of reality, becomes the last champion of the individual mind and sensibility against an intrusive society and an officious state. The great artist is thus a solitary figure. He has, as Frost said, a lover's quarrel with the world. In pursuing his perceptions of reality, he must often sail against the currents 
of his time. This is not a popular role. If Robert Frost was much honored during his lifetime, it was because a good many preferred to ignore his darker truths. Yet in retrospect, we see how the artist's fidelity has strengthened the fiber of our national life. If sometimes our great artists have been the most critical of our society, it is because their sensitivity and their concern for justice, which must motivate any true artist, makes him aware that our nation falls short of its highest potential. I see little of more importance to the future of our country and our civilization than full recognition of the place of the artist. If art is to nourish the roots of our culture, society must set the artist free to follow his vision wherever it takes him. We must never forget that art is not a form of propaganda, it is a form of truth. And as Mr. McLeish once remarked, of poets, there is nothing worse for our trade than to be in style. In free society, art is not a weapon, and it does not belong to the sphere of polemics and ideology. Artists are not engineers of the soul. It may be different elsewhere, but democratic society, in it, the highest duty of the writer, the composer, the artist, is to remain true to himself and to let the chips fall where they may. In serving his vision of the truth, the artist best serves his nation. And the nation which disdains the mission of art invites the fate of Robert Frost's hired man, the fate of having nothing to look backward to with pride and nothing to look forward to with hope. <sighs> so that's, I mean, the rest of this half hour is kind of just gravy because that's, that the, that's the point. And um, that, was, uh, that was JFK in a speech from 1963 it was the it was the eulogy for robert frost at, at amherst were you is that in your dna as an american do you know those words i did not know that uh speech. yes excellent because it really it really took me by surprise and i think it had a particular resonance now when you know as funders sundance is a is a non-profit and so we are reliant on foundations and philanthropists to support our work and at a time like this both globally and domestically there are many things that are urgent and that could be seen by less enlightened boards as more urgent than supporting the arts and, and independent storytelling. And I think that was just a powerful iteration of, of uh, asserting the importance of it against those things too. So that brings us back to the question of, of what can an organization like Sundance Institute uh, do to, to foster independent voices? Well, Tom, I'm glad you asked. I mean, the first thing that we the first thing that we do need to think about is um, what independence means. So, just to just to speak to the other bit of the equation first, the interdependent documentary community. Um, how can we do that? And we've started uh, we've started taking steps. I mean, partnerships is going to be a huge one, uh, and has been for us. So, things like if I think about the documentary community. I think one of the uh, one of the glues and the adhesives of it is the producing community, and so we um, we started a, a creative producing program um, to acknowledge the role of producers and to try and um, if they are not sustained as a as a class within our community, then the whole thing isn't going to work. Um, so we want to support producers as much as we can, but we also want to work with um, groups like the Producers Alliance, based here in New York, who have the same um, who have the same agenda. So, so producers are a big one. Um, other things like getting the funders together to talk about the issues that affect filmmakers. So. Um, uh, we were part of the core application. You know, it's, it seems really stupid, but this is all manpower. If you have to fill out five separate applications with different word counts for biography, it's just a stupid waste of time. You do not have to tell those people that. <laughs> so that kind of thing, having the funders get together and thinking, by being informed by the filmmakers, what is 
a pain in your life and how can we do a simple fix, things like that, to the more... Is that happening? Or is, is there it a... happened. It's called the Core App and lots of funders have already signed up for it. So, um, uh, Does it work your abs too? It, it's called the Core Abs, that one. It's a different, uh, it's a different application. Um, but there's another thing which has just been rolled out, which is more substantive in a way, um, in preserving the, the community and its work. Uh, the funder group got together and Doc Society, formerly BritDoc, um, put together a pretty rigorous set of protocols for safety and security. It is called, helpfully, Safe and Secure. Um, and it helps us to build capacity or ideally for filmmakers to build capacity and to be asking themselves the right questions um, in terms of how they keep themselves, their work and their subjects safe. Um, so things like that we should be doing, working together on. Um, and then, uh, and then of course it's, you know, what is the work that isn't being supported that, sh that should be, and there's a lot of it. Who are the filmmakers who aren't being supported who should be? So that stuff, that's about the, that's about the community. You, you talked about uh, listening to the uh, filmmaker community. What are the structures for that? We're, we're, how, how do you and your other fellow funders um, you know, uh, t take uh, feedback? Um, orally, mainly. Um, no, we work with, we have lots of, uh, so with Sundance, we have um, about 100 active projects supported at any time. So we're in constant dialogue with lots of people, both here and around the world. Um, and it's coming to things like this and be, being part of the co conversations, but also being mindful that not everybody can come to things like this. And so how can we reach people um, for whom a path to Sundance isn't a natural extension of their, of their practice? So... So that's good. But then to come to the independent voice, um, what does it mean in these times um, to be independent? I think as, sun, as we look at ourselves as, uh, as Sundance, we recognize and are proud of the fact that we stand for progressive values. And I think a large proportion of the community and the audience and the funders and the filmmakers stand for those values as well. Um, but we clearly missed a lot, um, uh, it seems, or there's an opportunity to engage in a different way, perhaps, if we think about what it really means to be independent. Um, and that tension between independence and progressive is something that we are digging deeper in. So for example, we as a fund, and we see lots of applications, never see any that you might describe as conservative or right-wing, that so how, so how you know how how can we claim to stand for the best of independent filmmaking when there's clearly a huge tranche of it that never comes anywhere near us and it might be that there are no good films coming from the right but that doesn't seem to be plausible so it seems it's, plausible to me <laughs> um well we shall see i think if we can at least open up the conversation um uh we'll feel like we're in a, a better place as regards democracy engagement properly listening I made this last time I was here I did a I did a list of 10 things I loved about documentary film and this this time I I did a thing of five capacities that I think the independent filmmaker has um I'm going to look at my book because I did them very early this right. morning <clears throat> okay uh the, the five senses or the capacities of the independent, independent filmmaker, seeing, not just looking, hearing, not just listening, imagining, not just documenting, which is why I think that the term non-fiction is useful, caring, not just observing, and making meaning, not just or indeed ever making money. And I think those things, each there are conversations going on about each of those things which are, um, which are instructive to our times um, and speak in some way to, to independent voice. Finding your place and being comfortable in it, uh, being represented. I mean, I think you are able to see things in a way that's different from just looking at things um, by having a a meaningful connection to the people that you are engaged in filming or telling stories about. Um, I think you can hear things rather than just listen to things if you are willing to acknowledge that there are important and meaningful stories coming from a different value set than yours. 
and I think that's going to be helpful to democracy going forward, not to sound pompous about it. Um, and then caring, not just uh, observing. This speaks to fascinating conversation about empathy, the limits of empathy. Um, uh, partly a, a paper that Sonia Childress wrote, uh, which I would recommend everybody looks at, um, is empathy enough? What do we miss when we're when we think of uh, of humanizing the other as the end point rather than the beginning point? Um, and often what we miss are the systemic problems, historical problems um, that have led to the injustice that we see. So just just having a sophisticated um, approach to what we're engaged in and 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 an honest one. and then the 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 final thing I mentioned about making meaning. I can't be very articulate about this or indeed anything currently, but there's something I worry about with story, which um, speaks to today as, as pitch day. Um, this insistence that uh, from funders primarily that everything has to be a story. And everything doesn't have to be a, a story to be able to express the world powerfully and in different language. Sometimes what you don't want is a story. And if we want to really understand what's going on in its complexity, in its context, I think that sometimes story can be an enemy to accuracy because it's hard to make everything wrap up. Can you give uh, an example? No, Tom, I can't. <laughs> but the difference often between um, journalism and documentary is not in whether it's turned into a story, but, but more kind of poetic expressive values. Um, have I got time to read a quote? I think so, yeah. All right. Um, John Berger. Is that your dodge to me following up to ask if you can give an example? Uh, yes. Because I can give an example, but I won't give an example. Because these you give an example A film that you admire that you think embodies what you're talking about of, of achieving its ends without the traditional story. Um... Uh, I'm going to say camera person, not just because Kirsten Johnson's right in front of me. Um, that's a different way of knowing and understanding things. Um, I would say, I am not your Negro, that uses cinematic form, uh, expressive, poetic language to deliver a timely and urgent and visceral wake-up call to the times we're in now, even though talking about times past and... and uh, a person passed. I think they're. I think they're all out there. Um, and I think one of the great things about you know those two films with the success that they had um, in informing the culture as well. And and hopefully it will allow people like me who do pitch panels and about to go to Amsterdam to recognise that the three act structure and and character arcs are one way of being effective, but not the only way. To your list, I'm going to add. Yeah. Um, Faces Places, the new film yes. by Agnes Varda and J.R. All right, so this thing from John Berger, it, it reminded me the fact we were just um, uh, commemorating Armistice Day and, and Veterans Day. Uh, he, talks about, uh, he talks about poems. He says, poems, even when narrative, do not resemble stories. All stories are about battles of one kind or another, which end in victory or defeat. Everything moves towards the end when the outcome will be known. Poems, regardless of any outcome, cross the battlefields, tending the wounded, listening to the wild monologues of the triumphant or the fearful. They bring a kind of peace, not by anesthesia or easy reassurance, but by recognition and the promise that what has been experienced cannot disappear as if it had never been. He goes on. But there's, some, there's something in our non-fiction language, again, I keep using this, but, but now in these times, we, our language needs to, and is, uh, needs to expand to fit the complexity of emotion and the recognition of humanity in the other and, and come at us from, a, from a, a different point of view, I think. I don't know. I mean, how do you feel, how do you feel about, as a, as a programmer of almost every film festival in the world, do you feel you have a responsibility to address the times, or, it, or is it simply about the expression of the work? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think it's... Uh, you, you can't separate the films that are coming through uh, from the, the times you're living in, because people are reacting to the times uh, they're living in. 
often with documentary filmmaking, you, there's a little bit of a wait period before you see the film come out um, about the times we're living in. So, you know, I don't think that there... I mean, have there been any great films um, yet about the Trump presidency? Um, I don't think so, not yet. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe films that reflect it in some different way, but not that are taken on uh, head-on. And and we probably there probably won't be for a year or two because it takes that. That's I think the wonderful thing about documentary is that people are spending time. It's not just a tweet you shoot off. And that's that's what I um in the make as I was thinking about what it is to make meaning. Time is such a key part of that for our for our field that um uh, that it's it, that that meaning partly comes through time. On, on the Pure Nonfiction podcast, a, a uh, remark. Oh, is that uh, the one I never made it onto? That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, this might. This was this had more energy to it, um, and uh, and you're filling it up with other people's quotes. So that's what I do. That's my <laughs> mo, Tom. You should know that. Um, but uh, if you listen to Pure Nonfiction, uh, you'll hear time and again filmmakers talk about time and uh and that is being the most important ingredient to their work yeah and i think it is it is an ingredient but then you also need the insight to know what time has afforded you to see and talent and money you know talking about yeah. uh, meaning over money filmmakers of course also need money and yeah. um and you've played an important role in that but not enough <laughs> Uh, I was just I was waiting for the for the, for the follow on thing. We're so grateful to you for uh joining us Tabitha Jackson. We're very happy that you're you have the position you have um because I think you bring a lot of sensitivity and insight to it. You are very kind. Thank you very much. I want to thank Tabitha Jackson for joining me at Doc NYC Pro. If you're going to Sundance, look out for me and Raphael Nehausen. We'll have pure nonfiction buttons to give away and a very limited number of pure nonfiction winter hats. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, who's making her first trip to Sundance this month, sound mixer Tom Micah, web designer Cross Strategy, and social media master Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.